Hi, I'm Jane Whitney. Welcome to the Common Ground Podcast. On every episode, we bring together diverse voices from across the nation to discuss the most pressing and controversial issues of our time, issues that make a difference in your life. On May 16th, I spoke with leading political analysts from both sides of the aisle about one of the toughest questions of our time, is unity the impossible dream? It's been called a cancer at the heart of our democracy, the malignant polarization that divides us. And yet, an overwhelming majority across the political spectrum agrees we have to at least try to get past it. We're just not sure if we can or how to start. Today, we'll explore whether resurrecting the concept of we the people is the impossible dream. Here to help us do that is a panel of distinguished and diverse voices. Joining us are David Brooks, best-selling author and New York Times columnist, Eddie Glaude Jr., Distinguished Professor of African-American Studies at Princeton University. Margaret Hoover, host of the PBS show Firing Line with Margaret Hoover. And political pollster and strategist Frank Luntz. We're so grateful to have all of you with us. And Frank, since you're in Oxford, England, in deference to the time difference, I am going to start with you. And I want to start with something I heard you say during an interview very recently, which is that America is past damaged, it's past divided. It is broken, and it is broken like shattered glass, which you can't put back together. Now that you're in Oxford and you've had a little distance, are you still feeling that pessimistic about America? I'm feeling more so, because the English, the British, the UK was able to put things back together after Brexit. And I'm not convinced that America will be able to put things back together because you have to want to. You actually have to participate. And that requires politicians to deliver something much more than just platitudes, which is my profession coming up with language. They actually have to do it, which means you need cabinets that have Republicans and Democrats. You need advisors that combine voices outside the traditional. And it's not enough to say you want unity. You actually have to pursue it. And I don't see any effort from anyone on the Republican side or the Democratic side who's truly, truly trying to achieve that sense of common ground, which is what this show is based on. Let me just, okay, so let me stop you because we named our show Common Ground because we thought it was aspirational. We thought it's something people don't have. It's what we all want at this point. And I also heard you say that as Aaron Sorkin called it, a mission to civilize, you are on something right now where you are trying to affect positive change. You are trying to affect unity because this is sort of a tipping point. And I think you have to understand how, how we got to this point to some degree. Um, back in 2014, there was a piece about you called The Agony of Frank Luntz. It talked about how after Mitt Romney lost to Barack Obama, you for the first time were in your focus groups and you were hearing people say things that you had never heard them say before, and it scared you. Why did it scare you? What happened back then that was a tipping point for you? Because I realized that great language was no match for populism that I had been part of. I'm, I have to take some responsibility because starting with Ross Perot and, and moving uh, for a couple of decades, I've been part of this populist revolt, this anti-government revolt, this, and, and there's still elements of this that I agree with today, but, but I, my politics has changed. And I've realized that one of the most liberating things in life is to be able to say, 
I got it wrong. And in two words, I'm sorry. And there is no welcoming on the web for any of this. There's no welcoming for humility. There's no welcoming for civility. We punish people who say they got it wrong. We punish people who apologize. But how can we have a civil conversation? How can we say, are there things that we can agree on? Can we agree on the on the end goals? Can we agree on the mission? But Frank, how can you start to talk to people and try and really hear people if you can't agree on a collective set of facts? And in this country, I think it's your survey that even says 76% of Republicans think that this election was stolen. They believe that Donald Trump was robbed. And if you can't agree, it used to be you could have your own opinions, but you didn't have your own facts. How do you move past the fact that you don't even have a set of facts that you agree on? That's what I'm trying to figure out. And that's what I'm spending the next two months trying to figure out, because we will break apart. I I don't assume that just because America's had times like this, going back to the Civil War, when we've been at truly at physical at war with each other and an awful lot of people died. Okay, it's not that bad. It's not the depression. It's not World War II. I, I recognize that. But in terms of our ability to communicate with each other, this is as bad as it has been in my lifetime. I'd argue that this is worse than any time in the last three generations. And the problem is there's no one who's actually seeking common ground other than a Joe Manchin, uh, other than a uh, than the problem solvers caucus, there is, and there are a few Republicans like Susan Collins who are desperately seeking that common ground. But most politicians now are playing to their base. Most politicians have moved, and they're actually participants in this war. And these are very good people who will tell me uh, behind closed doors that they hate it. They hate what they're doing. They, they, they know the damage to it, but they don't want to get primary. They don't, they don't know how to stand up for the base on both sides. Let me, let me just give you a specific example. Sure. If Joe Biden would credit Donald Trump with the speed of the vaccine, if Donald Trump would credit Joe Biden for the speed of the rollout, and then the two of them would, would turn to their doctors and say, but don't trust us, listen to them. That in itself, that 60-second PSA would save thousands and thousands of lives, not just in America, but across the globe, because people would pay attention to it. They can't even do that and damn them for being unwilling to save lives. It is their responsibility. I'm doing the best I can not to use four-letter words because I don't want to get you guys in trouble. But Jesus, Biden, Trump, get in the same room at the same time and tell people, do something smart for yourself your family, your friends, and get vaccinated. Come on. You did a mea culpa, and I respect you for that. You said that you were wrong um, in terms of some of the ways in which you've handled this. But, but you also had a hand in stoking what we're living with today. And what I hear you saying is, you don't think you have the words at this point to try, aside from the, the example you just gave us, to try and move us, move us forward out of it. In other words, you you coin death tax, you coin climate change, you're the master wordsmith, you're the political guru. You can charm the husk right off of the corn, and yet you don't seem to have the words now. That's a lyric from Mame, as we all know. But anyway, you don't seem to have the words to get us to a better place than we are now. 
A man hears what he wants to hear and disregards the rest. That's from Paul Simon. And I think that that's very important right now to understand that it is so difficult because each of us have gone back to our, our base. We can't even talk to the other side right now. And, and this is why we should celebrate people like Brett Baer and, and uh, Chris Wallace and, and maybe uh, Brian Williams, uh, Andrea Mitchell on CNN. I've had uh, a good experience with some of their report, uh, some of their anchors, but only a few on these networks. And everyone else is stoking it. So I'm hoping that your panel is going to say to all of us, enough, just stop. And you say to me, well, I, 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 I was responsible for some of this. I don't argue with you. But the first step in actually getting this under control is to challenge your own side. So that means that David Brooks has to turn on the pages of the editorial page and say, this is not right. You can be hostile to Donald Trump 90% of the time, not 100% of the time, because he must have done something right. And on the left, it means the people on MSNBC and CNN saying to their people, wait a minute, that there are legitimate people out there who, who feel ignored, betrayed, and forgotten. That there are legitimate people who supported Donald Trump for the right reasons, not the wrong reasons. There are no programs that go to Kentucky and Tennessee and West Virginia. We have all these programs that help the inner city, and they, they need help. But so do uh, uh, rural communities. So do small towns. You're more likely to be able to get on the web in, in the most urban areas of New York City than you are in these rural areas of Kansas and Wyoming and Nebraska. We need a, a unity effort that ties the urban communities to the rural communities because both of them can benefit and both people get pulled up. So number one, we've forgotten that community. Number two is that we've forgotten hardworking Americans that we're looking at, at adding as much as we can to these various programs, uh, which I don't think necessarily help people, but we're not looking at hardworking taxpayers and saying to them, we know you bust your ass, we know you work hard, we know you have several jobs, uh, and you're trying to do whatever you can for your friend, for your family and your kids. Let's show them respect, let's show them appreciation. All right, we don't have time to debate the, the uh, do a granular policy debate on some of the things you just blocked out, but I do want to move ahead to something that goes to, I think, the fact that a lot of this animosity and vitriol is generated top down. It's not necessarily from the ground up. So it's coming from the political class to some degree. How do you feel about the fact that the current uh, Republican uh, electeds are talking about just blocking everything? absolutely everything. It's, it's a reprise of what happened during the Obama years. In other words, nobody's giving a chance to any kind of policy that might help the people you're talking about. They're simply, once again, putting party over the country. They're not thinking about what people need. They're simply worried about being, as you said earlier, primaried. So, so how, how do you sort of you know, foster that sort of cooperation within Congress? I'm not convinced it is possible, but I'm very impressed with the Problem Solvers Caucus. Look, you need accountability, not anger. And that's what the public is getting right now. They're getting the anger, not the accountability. You've every right to hold this administration accountable for each program and each line item. And they should hold them accountable because that's money that's being spent that I'm not convinced it's needed. 
Second is that you need personal responsibility, not politics, which means that we have to be able to teach people the ability. And I'll tell you, my greatest fear, my single greatest fear is education. And my greatest frustration is that our kids are not being taught the skills they need for college, for career, and for real life. And the truth is, we are not going to help people by writing them checks. I want to ask about another another factor that you say is really part of the picture and part of the problem, and that's social media. Talk about what social media has done to this whole this whole thing. Good for you. It's a poison. It is. It just takes a bad situation, makes it worse. At least you get five percent of people watching cable that don't necessarily agree with what they're being told on social media. It's a hundred percent, and it's inaccurate, and there's no accountability, and so people are reading stuff that's simply not true. I can't believe in this day and age that we're more likely to trust someone we don't even know and can't even see and can't even verify. We're more likely to trust that than we are our own doctor and our own pharmacist. Get the truth, demand the truth, demand the facts, and don't trust anything you read on the web because quite frankly, it's not deserving of trust. We're almost out of time with you, but uh, as as we go into this last section, I do want to have the first video question of this show. And Frank, I'd like you to take a pass at this on the other side. Here it is. Hi, I'm Julia. I'm a New Yorker, originally from Oklahoma. Growing up in a small conservative town has definitely led to some lively debates over the years. But now it doesn't just feel like policy. It feels more like a deeper moral issue to the point that I'm no longer wanting to engage with Trump supporters. So my question is, how can I be part of the solution when there is no middle ground and I'm no longer willing to compromise my values to get along with Republicans? I always let voters go first. I always let the people themselves speak first because that's the way that you begin to understand. And I'm sorry for her, but she is, she is becoming the majority in this country. The people have completely written off the other side and by the way, it is the greatest among 18 to 29-year-olds. Almost 50% of 18 to 29-year-olds have stopped talking to someone because they disagree with them politically. If that's the direction of this country, we are, we are doomed. Our education system has to teach communication and it has to teach empathy because, and civility. If, the, if you learn to appreciate and respect another's point of view, there isn't a challenge that cannot be addressed. If we don't learn that as students, we'll never learn that as adults. Frank Luntz, can't thank you enough for your candor. I knew you'd be very candid. And on that remaining time you have in Oxford, England, enjoy being there, it's gorgeous. And uh, we wish you a lot, of, a lot of luck with that mission to civilize. And now we're gonna carry on this conversation. Margaret Hoover, who has I guess you might say been hardwired to be a Republican. As everyone knows, your great-grandfather was President Herbert Hoover. Um, being a Republican, your husband said, is like a religion for you almost. And yet you have actually broken with the Republican Party. You called yourself recently a Republican in exile. Now, you've spent your whole life in this world and yet you're at odds with your own party. So the question then becomes, how do we find anything that resembles unity going forward? Well, you know, Jen, I'm not sure 
goal, the goal should be unity right now, given what the stakes are. The Republican Party just recently in the House of Representatives decided to unify behind a lie that President Trump won the election and Joe Biden is not an authentic or legitimate president of the United States. I mean, they decided to unify behind a lie that is blatantly undermining the Constitution. So actually, I don't think the goal in the Republican Party right now should be unity. I mean, that is precisely why Liz Cheney was voted from leadership, because they wanted to unify uh, behind, you know, despising Joe Biden's policies and sort of push aside this dirty little secret that uh, actually Joe Biden's legitimately elected, that we had the safest election in American history, that right. Attorney General Barr right. said there was absolutely no voter fraud. Uh, so right now, in order for the country to get back together, we have to understand what has, we have to review our recent history with a high degree of scrutiny and clarity about what is unraveling us. And that requires disagreeing strongly right now, I think. So are you as negative as Frank is in terms of how broken our culture is, how broken our, our discourse is? I agree with much of Frank's characterization. Uh, I, I think when you get out into the country, fortunately, this plague of political identity, I mean, the majority of Americans don't first identify with their voter registration as the most important thing about them. And so for, for people who do, we are deeply fractured. And I think that's the, the agony that you saw sort of exuding from, uh, from Frank. But the, the good news is that fortunately, most people don't. Um, so I don't, think it's, I don't think it's quite as bad as he put it for America writ large. But, but there is no question, our civic fabric is fraying. And even when it doesn't have anything to do explicitly with politics, um, there's a high degree of isolation, economic isolation, um, social anxiety and isolation that many people across the country are feeling that doesn't tie directly to our politics. Um, and then to the extent that you are actually involved in the political system, you know, we have a, a real failing, a real failing of our political system um, on many fronts uh, at the federal level um, to, uh, to, to represent the vast majority of, of sort of median views in the country. Eddie Glaude Jr., I'm going to turn to you at this point because we recently had the privilege of being able to talk to Dr. Fauci, and I quoted what I heard you say on the air once, which is that what's missing from our polity right now is a sense of mutuality, that we don't have the sense that we're in this together anymore. It's not like during World War II where there was this real kind of commonality and common cause. We don't have that anymore. Talk about that a little bit and how that's impacted this whole picture. Well, it seems to me that, that you know, the sense of mutuality that is so important for any democratic polity to, to flourish uh, has diminished, and for a variety of reasons. Uh, one has to do with the kind of information silos that Frank Luntz talked about as people have retreated into these information silos that are where their opinions are only confirmed, uh, where they're only associated with like-minded people. Uh, there are also there's also this element I think uh, of holding one's opponents with contempt. Uh, the difficult it's always been difficult to kind of keep from moving from disagreement uh, to a substantive judgment about the character of the person that disagrees with you. 
It's one thing to say that I disagree with person Y about issue X. It's another thing to say that that disagreement suggests that person X is a bad human being or person Y is a bad human being. And then the third issue I would, I would point to is that there is a kind of uh, pandemic of greed and selfishness that has eroded the polity in some ways, this sense of agreement. And I think that has a lot to do with the political and economic ideology that has transformed us from citizens in community with each other to self-interested persons in competition with each other. Now, underneath it all, in my view, uh, is, of course, uh, the issue of race that has haunted this uh, fragile experiment since its founding. Uh, we have yet to reconcile ourselves to it. Uh, and those ghosts still threaten to, th- you know, to choke the life out of, out of our democracy, it seems to me. You recently tweeted that you wondered what the merit of compromise is when it comes to the folks you're talking about who would not acknowledge the poison, the toxicity of, of systemic racism. So it, it's like, are you saying stop talking to people? What, what is it you're actually saying? Well, I'm trying to kind of make sense of our history. What does it mean to compromise with uh, plantation owners who uh, rebelled, who were traitors? Um, And in the context of Andrew Johnson's ascendance to the presidency, uh, uh, giving a license to those Southern traitors, and what did they do? Well, we had the the redeemers. And, And who had to bear the brunt of those compromises? So what does it mean to compromise with people who believe in the lie? What does it mean to compromise with folk who, who think that uh, the election was stolen. And when they say that, they mean Atlanta, they mean Detroit, they mean Philadelphia, they mean Detroit, they mean Milwaukee. What does it mean to compromise with people who actually believe that this country must remain a white nation in the vein of old Europe? So part of what I'm trying to say is, if we're not honest with the ghost in the room, what are we asking us to do? And I don't want my son or my future grandchildren to have to bear the burden or the brunt of another compromise, which means what? That another generation of black and brown people will have to deal with, right? This idea that America must remain a white nation. I can't, I can't stomach that. David Brooks, I'm going to bring you into it at this point, because Frank Luntz seemed to feel that you, you, he approved of whatever it is you're doing at this point, which has a lot to do actually with trying to find the common ground that we're talking about. And you have said that you think that we're in the middle, an inflection moment of a moral convulsion moment is what you call it, I think. What does that actually mean? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to be the optimist on the panel, which means I think we're only going to doom Yay! slowly. <laughs> no, uh, I got that concept from Samuel Huntington, a political scientist, late political scientist at Harvard, who wrote a book in 1981 called The Politics of Disharmony. And he said, it, it seems that about every 60 years, America goes through what he called a moral convulsion, which uh, people lose faith in institutions. A new moral generation comes on the scene. There's a new communications technology. Uh, there's rage at the existing order and a lot of division and hatred in society. And that's happened in the 1770s with the revolution, the 1830s with the Jackson movement, 1890s, which led to the progressive movement, and late 1960s. And in 1981, he said, 
if the weird 60-year pattern occurs, sometime around 2020, we'll have another moral convulsion. And I think he's right. And I think it started about 2014, both with the rise of Black Lives Matter and the rise of, of populists. And then we had Trump and Brexit. And then we had COVID, which to me was like a hurricane in the middle of an earthquake. And so we're in a bumpy time. And it's a right. bumpy time for a lot of deep reasons. One of them is what Eddie just talked about. We've gone from a white dominant society to a much more diverse society. Another is globalization. Another is highly educated people are educating their kids really well, sending them off to fancy colleges. And then those kids move into the cities where they make a lot of money. And so the top 20% is just controlling everything else. And the bottom 80% is upset about it legitimately. And so there are a lot of big narratives we're working through. And we do have a sense that, you know, I just have basic faith in people's ability to innovate their way to a culture that solves their problems. I've heard you also cite a study that talks about how 25 years ago, 64% uh, of Americans believed in the goodness, the, the wisdom they trusted their fellow Americans. And now that number is down to, I think, about 33%. And so the question becomes for the optimist on this panel, how do you get that back? Do you get that back, David? Yeah, I think the politics is flowing out of ultimate realities. Uh, people who are on the Republican side have been traumatized by grief and loss. Uh, you go, I've been, I've spent so much time over the last four years talking to Trump voters. And, you know, I talked to one guy in South Dakota. He had his, he was 70, but he had his best job when he was 35. And every job after that has been worse and worse and worse. And he's lost kids to opioid suicide or opioid addiction. Uh, his neighborhood is falling apart. So there's grief and loss. You go to the cities. Persistent injustice, there's grief and loss. So I don't think we're going to solve our political problems on our political level. It has to be solved on the social level. Fanaticism is driven by existential anxiety. And when people can't feel safe, when they can't feel they trust each other, then they're going to react in bad ways. And I think that's what we're seeing now. So how do you make people feel safe? Well, a lot of it has to happen on the local level. A lot of it has to happen by community leaders, by neighbors, making each other feel safe. Uh, a neighbor, a community is a group of people with a common story and a community is a group of people with a common problem, project, doing stuff together, tangible stuff, building a park. That's the kind of stuff that builds trust. And then on the national level, I'm a more or less center right sort of person. But I think what Joe Biden is doing is, is what we need. We need a massive investment in people who don't have college degrees in this country. And the Biden agenda would spend awesome amounts of money on working class and lower middle class voters and to shore up the, the parts of society that need shoring up. And so I think, you know, those are reasonable responses to a, a, a gigantic problem. And we're going to talk more about those reasonable responses uh, as we move on in this broadcast. But for right now, David, one of the other culprits in this picture is uh, negative uh, partisanship, hyperpartisanship. You hear it called a lot of different things. And our next video question uh, goes to that subject and how we can perhaps ameliorate some of that. So let's take a look at the question. It's for you, David. Hi, my name is Dorothy, and I'm a family therapist from Connecticut. Since the 2016 election, Political differences have become increasingly more prevalent in family disputes. Political beliefs have become akin to religious beliefs in that each side is married to their ideological point of view with an unwillingness to seek a fuller understanding of the issues. Do you think the decline of civic knowledge 
and the lack of civic education in schools has contributed to the inability for individuals to maintain a focus on the common good versus one's personal beliefs? Well, the political scientists call what we're going through two things, effective polarization, which is we don't disagree more, we just hate each other more, and then negative polarization. We're not crazy about our own side, but we really hate the other side. And I think that's part of what we just heard about, which is people have decided their political identity is their primary identity. It used to be you had a lot of different identities. If you were, grew up in Chicago, you said, I'm from 59th and Pulaski. My neighborhood was part of my identity. Sports teams, whatever, my fraternal order was part of my identity. But for some reason, people, a lot of people have become, have become politically addicted. Uh, and I think when you talk about people's politics, you can measure them on left to right scale but it's addicted, non-addicted. And the people who are really controlling the debate are the politically addicted. And for them, politics is who they are. And that's simply asking of politics more than it's able to bear. Because uh, politics is a compromise between mutual goods. And if you, if you think your politics is part of your identity, you're unwilling to compromise because it's compromising your very honor. So I think the only solution to that is to try to find other ways for people to establish a personal sense of worth and identity establish a better form of groupishness. Now, religion is a diminishing force in American politics. Maybe that will revive, but community can also be a form of groupishness. And so we just simply, if you take away all the other groupishness, people will cling to the, the one that is easiest and most tribal. Uh, and that's what they're doing. But we need other forms of identity. So I would never identify myself as, I mean, I am a, either a Republican or Democrat, but I've got eight other things I'm also. Uh, and so we just got to get people to multiply their identities so they'll become less fanatical about the one they seem to have chosen. Margaret's uh, surveys also, studies, polls show that people would welcome the idea to have not only children taught conflict resolution, but that adults would be willing to maybe in, sort of engage in how we could speak more civilly to other people. I think David's exactly right. And to, to point out that there's there's an... Uh, there's a left and right access, but then also a, a, a up and down access, access, right? The um, sort of an X axis and a Y axis. And that, you know, depending on how fervently you identify, uh, you, your self-identity is wrapped around your political identity. Um, that is sort of the recipe for um, the fraying of our social fabric around politics. So perhaps this is but an interval in uh, a, a spasm in uh, a unity and uh, a, a just sort of a necessary um, uh, upheaval that comes in due course in American society. But I do think uh, it exists uh, for too many Americans, and that is contributing to the fraying of our culture, the distrust in institutions. I would just say it's not only politics that is doing that. I mean, there is massive economic disruption and upheaval that also contributes to people feeling isolated and uh, not connected. What you're saying may be true, but what, the way it manifests for a lot of people is that the political identification has become the reason why people don't go out with somebody, why people break up with somebody, why people don't talk to family members. I mean, that is sort of what has emerged in the last whatever, now four or five years, that people have gotten to the point where all they have to hear, as David said, is that 
they belong to this party and the hatred immediately, there are assumptions made about that person. Yeah, there's a wonderful piece written by Ann Applebaum in the uh, Atlantic earlier about coexistence. How are we going to build back the country in a post-Trump time when you have people who won't talk to people who voted for Donald Trump or vice versa? And if you look at countries who have been through civil wars, who have been through significant social disruption, they do the things that David was just talking about. They focus on community building, economic regeneration, local projects, because, you know, you can you can fight about politics or you can, you know, build a well or build a road or build the broadband or do the things that are actually going to affect, get people vaccinated, that are going to change the quality of life in a community and connect people to their communities so that they have something in common with their neighbors. They have a, a, a social um, cohesiveness that can then transcend uh, th those other ideas. Eddie, I want to go back to you because um, Ibram Kende in The Atlantic as well, another Atlantic reference, talked about how denial is the heartbeat of racism and denial is the heartbeat of America. As Americans, very often we somehow comfort ourselves with this notion that we're a work in progress. So when a Charlottesville happens, you know, we're learning and we'll move on. And then when Pittsburgh happens and there's a mass killing at a synagogue, we'll move on. And then when El Paso happens, the same thing is what we tell ourselves. And you talk a lot, very powerfully, about the myths and the legends that keep us from really dealing with these issues that we have to deal with. Could you do that now, please? Sure, I think there's, there's this sufficient ideology of American perfectionism that secures us against our sins, that we're always already on the road to a more perfect union. Yes, we once held slaves, but we don't now. See, our inherent goodness has been verified, right? No, we once, women were once limited to, uh, to, to the home, to the domestic sphere. Now they're out in the workplace. No, no, that, that's a sign. That we're, on, that we're on our way to being a more perfect union. And I think oftentimes our myths and legends allow us to avoid or evade our actual practices, where the practices reveal our commitments as opposed to our ideals. And I think part of the work that we have to do in moving forward is tell ourselves the truth about who we are. Racial injustice did not just happen. It is the result of deliberate policy. When we think about the wealth gap, the achievement gap, when we think about uh, the different ways in which communities are policed, when we think about the way our schools look, all of this is the result of deliberate policy. When you think about the vaunted American middle class and how it came into existence during the con in the context of the New Deal, we know that there were deliberate efforts to cut Black people out of the benefits of the New Deal. We know about redlining. We know about FHA loans. We understand the way in which police forces were deployed in order to contain Black communities. We understand the impact of residential segregation and segregated schools. Racial inequality is a result of deliberate choice. It is the country we made. If we're going to resolve it, we have to be just as deliberate. But we don't want to be as deliberate because it will admit guilt. We would have to admit complicity. But to admit such a thing is not to condemn one to hell of sorts, right? It's actually to release you into a different way of being until we actually acknowledge honestly what we have built. We cannot imagine ourselves otherwise. And that's the key point, that we have to, in some ways, tell the truth in order for us to reconcile and repair. Because if we don't tell the truth, 
then reconciliation is not possible and repair will be a pipe dream. We're talking about a lot of big themes today that, that don't have obviously easy answers, but, but I have to ask you on the heels of that, do you see any progress toward achieving what you're talking about? Do you see hopeful signs? Do you have David Brooks's optimism? <laughs> oh, no, I don't have David's optimism. <laughs> uh, I'm not an optimist. I'm, I'm, more, I'm never an optimist, actually. Uh, I, I'm more, I have a blue-soaked blue soaked sense of hope, uh, and hope and optimism is, is different, to quote my neighbor. Um, but look, every moment of crisis represents a moment of opportunity, of potential. We are at a crossroads as a country. We have to figure out who we are going to be. And the question is, will we double down on our ugliness, which we've done in the past, in these moments? Will we double down on our ugliness, or, we or will we finally imagine a way of being together that's different? Here's where David and I, uh, we, we converge. I think we need a new, robust moral and social contract. What are our obligations to each other? Obligations shorn of the belief that some of us ought to be valued more than others, but rather the sacrality of human being is at the center of our understanding of our relationship to each other. The common good has been eroded over the last 40 years. So what do we need to do to rebuild it? We're in a moment of crisis, a convulsion. The question is, what will we do with it? Will we double down on our ugliness or will we dare to imagine ourselves otherwise? All right, I have to get a quick, a quick reaction from you, David. What, what do you think about what Eddie just said? Yeah, I, I remain a little more hopeful, especially on this subject. Uh, uh, maybe it's just we're all we're all just wired in a certain way, but I'm I'm wired up. Beat. You know, when Eric Garner was killed in 2014, Americans were asked, "Do you think African Americans are disproportionately treated by police?" And only 34 percent said yes. After George Floyd was killed last summer, 60 percent said yes. And so I think over the course of the last few years, but especially in the, the year since Floyd was killed, there had this conversation on race, this con confrontation with our past has has in my view risen to a new level and what that when eddie was talking about the redlining and the fha loans and all the stuff he mentioned that litany of discrimination that's a step forward that's a step of progress just him telling that story is part of the steps we have to take to build a unifying narrative we had a narrative in this country which i'm an immigrant or kid of immigrants and we had an exodus story narrative that people escaped oppression, came to the promised land, and then built the land. And that was a narrative that left a lot of people out. So somehow we have to come up with a new narrative that includes all voices. And I think the, the conversations that I've had with my black friends who have said they feel more able to be blunt, and then with my white friends who have said, you know, I've changed my mind on a lot of this stuff. I, I, it wasn't like I was thinking but as much about it as I am now. And I feel like my consciousness has changed on all sorts of issues. My consciousness has changed on reparations. And so I think this is, a, this is like a, a project before us to build a society that is more racially just. And that is a common endeavor uh, that can unify at least the younger part of the country. <laughs> uh, and, and so I, I do see, especially in the last year, a lot of good news on this subject. Margaret, I want to go back to uh, politics for a minute, because that is something that drives the national conversation, as we all know. Um, I think the largest group of voters, 41 percent, identify as independents. 
And we have a video question right now that goes to that whole subject and we'd like you to tackle it. So let's have a look at that one. Hi, I'm Sam from Alaska. A nationwide Pew Research study in 2018 showed that 81% of independent voters aren't actually nonpartisan, but lean towards one party or the other. In political terms, they're wolves in sheep's clothing. What is the danger in mischaracterizing so many independents as nonpartisan when they actually do have partisan tendencies? Margaret, so, so we're going back to this whole question of, is there anybody left in the middle? Because if that many independents really do have partisan leanings, where does that leave us? As recently as um, two or three years ago, there were between 14 and 16 states where registered independents outnumbered either Democrats or Republicans. Uh, I actually would frame it a little bit differently. You have an increasing number of people who, while they may lean to the right or lean to the left, have more in common with the center right or the center left of the opposite party than they do with the far extreme of their own party, right? That means that the party system as, as a market system is failing. It isn't answering the questions or solving the problems or putting forth solutions or candidates that are representing an increasing number of Americans. And you have to ask, one has to ask themselves why. Why is that? Well, you can look at a closed party prim primary processes. You can look at uh, redistricting. You can look at any number of factors that contribute to the fact that the majority of, of members in the House of Representatives represent and are pulled towards the extreme of their party or they're pulled further to the right or pulled further to the left uh, rather than representing sort of the median of their party or the, even the, 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 the majority of the Republicans in the district from which they are sent to Washington or Democrats for that matter. There is a, a real clear hyper-partisanship that is strangling particularly how the Congress works in Washington uh, at the federal level. Now, there are uh, legislatures across the country that are hyper-functional. <laughs> they are dark blue legislatures working with red governors uh, and vice versa. Um, but at the federal level, you have a, a sclerotic hyper-partisanship that is really choking the stranglehold of what the founders intended for, for that body. They intended an accommodation and a bargaining. They, they wanted, they, they, that we are supposed to be incentivized to compromise, to get things done. And that has happened less and less and less over the, the, the last 40, 50 years. Uh, and, and so there are there's a new group, I would call them uh, uh, democratic reformers, democracy reformers, who are looking towards how do we try to try to fix these things. And part of the reason we have identified that that there is a problem is because of the increasing number of independents, just like Sam, across the country, where the, where the party solutions, the, the market apparatus, the party apparatus simply isn't getting us across the finish line. Talking about this new coalition that was just recently announced of, I guess you would say, Republicans who feel like they're homeless, who, um, not literally, who feel they want to go out and they've started a, I don't even know if they're calling it a third party, it's an alternative. Now, do you think that that is something that could get traction? Folks like Christy Todd Whitman and uh, former RNC chair Michael Steele, you know, big names are putting this together. And I guess the question becomes, do you think that that would help to bring down the temperature in the country? It's not without merit. Uh, I have a very difficult time seeing how the Republican Party reforms itself from the Congress at this point. Um, and 
while I have always been skeptical of, of the emergence of a new center-right party in competition with the Republicans, you know, I am normally an optimist. I am normally with David Brooks, but these are very, these are the, I was naive enough to think that the Republican Party would be in better straits once Donald Trump left the White House. And I actually think that it is now worse than ever, the prospects for the Republican Party as the Republican Party continues to double down uh, and, and fall behind Donald Trump, even after having lost the White House, the Senate and the House of Representatives, uh, and to continue with this lie that undermines uh, the the faith that people have in our elections as being truthful and fair elections and undermines the rule of law and undermines the Constitution may very well open up a possibility for uh, a new, more responsible uh, set of center-right candidates, um, simply because the Republican Party may not be able to field anyone that supports the Constitution and can go up against Donald Trump's big lie. David, when I ask you the same question about this emerging uh, alternative, the Republicans at this point have doubled down on what they believe to be the truth about the election. And it, because they've told their electorate that that's the truth. So you've got this huge number of people believing in the fact that the election was stolen from Donald Trump. Do you think there's any real possibility of a shift to a third party or a, another option? It's certainly stacked against it. You know, thinking is for bonding. It's not for truth finding. And a lot of people are now embracing the election truth just because they want to be part of the team. And this is what the team tells them to believe. But, you know, if I'm going to stay uh, optimistic, I, I do think that the party's it's super dynamic system. Remember, the Republican Party, when I came to Washington, it was filled with young nerds who wore Adam Smith neckties. And it was a very ideological party. No, the party isn't particularly ideological. It doesn't seem to have too many policy agendas. It's got a lot of cultural war issues and it's got some other things, but it's mostly about a lifestyle. So the Republican Party has transformed from an ideological movement of which say Liz Cheney typified uh, to a lifestyle movement of which Donald Trump typifies. He's not about policy, he's about culture. And that's a, and that it turns out to be quite a, 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 a viable thing in this country. A lot of his Trump supporters were not Republicans until Donald Trump came along. And a lot of them would be surprising. We're getting more data on the 2020 election. And uh, Donald Trump did better than he did in 2016 among Latinos by 16 percentage points. That's an astoundingly large group of people moving over. Among African-Americans, seven percentage points. Uh, the people who went from Republican to Democrat were college-educated whites. We just may have a, a country in which the, work, the high school educated folks are in the Republican Party and disproportionately college educated folks are in the Democratic Party. And if, if that were indeed the case, as I think it is, uh, then I think the people who are forming this sort of center-right coalition will wind up as conservative Democrats before too long. Margaret, I wanna ask you about a piece that was written in the New York Times about your marriage to John Avalon. Here you are a conservative is the way they identified you. And they identified John as a, an independent with a liberal's heart. And the piece said that the way you bridge the orthodoxies that divide us would be a great learning experience for us. So what would we learn from your marriage to John? Look, what we do to make it work is the same thing that uh, all the, the peace bakers and the peace builders and David Brooks has said, we'll bring our social firmament together, which is that we focus on local community projects, namely our children, our household, and, 
and all of the, all of the things that um, are required in building a life with somebody. And in that, what you learn is that you learn that it's not going to work if you're not going to put, if you're not going to give people the benefit of the doubt first, if you're not going to trust and love and have a, a clear intention to try and make it work. And, and that's what we need in our culture. That's what we need with our neighbors. We need to assume best intentions from the people with whom we politically disagree. Eddie, you recently spoke at a college commencement and you talked about the fact, and you, you've alluded to this earlier in the broadcast, that, that we're at a profound moment of transition. And you also mentioned your son Langston, I think his name is, um, and the kind of world he's, he's growing up in. How do you articulate going forward your best hope for where we should be? There's a wonderful line uh, that James Baldwin delivered in an interview or gave in an interview in 1970 in Istanbul. And he said, hope is invented every day. Hope is invented every day. And in order for that to be meaningful or to make sense, at least to me, it requires that you have to recognize that if hope has to be invented every day, it means that you have to hold off despair every day. Uh, so I have an unabide, I have an uh, a faith in the capacities of human beings to be different, to be otherwise. I have an unashamed faith in our capacity to do miracles if we show up, right? Even though we may be disasters. So my faith in us, right, is 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 unshaken. But I don't, I must, I must put this, I must say this though. Margaret said, you know, to give one's interlocutors the benefit of the doubt. It's hard to do when the historical record is such. It's hard. Because it means that you have to take a risk in that moment. I would say that we all need to accept and then to risk. Right? Because a world is collapsing. The age of Reagan, it's fall, Reagan is falling apart. The question is, what will take its place? And that's going to be up to us if we are truthful with ourselves. But we have to take the risk and step up and be miracles, or at least try to do miracles. It seems to me. That's what I tell my son, at least. David, I uh, have a few minutes. I'd like you to talk about the organization that you've been part of that you feel is <clears throat> really making inroads into the issue we've been talking about today, that it's getting out and talking to people or talking to people the way we are um, in our own separate venues right now, but getting out and actually listening to people. And you've been doing that. Tell us what you've been doing. Yeah, well, I'm chair of a program called Weave. Uh, and the basic idea was that a lot of the problems I was talking about, and we all were talking about just now, stem from distrust and fragmentation and, and animosity and hatred. But the problems are being solved at the local level by people we call weavers. And so Aisha Butler lives in Englewood in Chicago, and she was going to leave Englewood because of the, da the danger. But on the day she was going to leave, she looked across the street and saw a little girl in a pink dress playing with broken bottles in an empty lot. And she said, I'm not leaving this. I'm not going to be just another family who left this. So she started volunteering and she stayed put and now runs a thing called Rage. Pancho Arguiles is a guy in Houston who takes uh, men, mostly undocumented workers who've been paralyzed in construction accidents. And he gives them uh, wheelchairs and catheters and diapers so they can lead dignified lives. And together they all become social workers. So you'll be in a Houston neighborhood and like 25 Latino guys in wheelchairs will roll into your neighborhood to solve some problem you have. 
and so these people are everywhere. We would land in McCook, Nebraska, Wilkesboro, North Carolina, and we just say, who's trusted here? And immediately they point you to this person, that person. You can find 75 weavers in an hour. And so to, to spend the last three years with folks like this, which I've done, is to be uplifted. And it becomes impossible to be pessimistic because you're just surrounded by people who show all the way up for each other, who really, we all talk about putting relationships first, they actually do. And you know, there's a guy, Robert Perry, I ran in Chicago, who did some time in prison. And he, he goes to gang members and some of the gangs he used to be in. And he says, here's my cell phone, call me if you want advice. And I, when you're with him, his phone is beeping all the time. And that's a 24 seven, seven day <laughs> commitment. And, but he's, that's his mission in life. And he's a beautiful, beautiful human being. And so I think we can all think of the people in our own lives. Some work for organizations, some are just good neighbors. Uh, I have a friend who says, I practice aggressive friendship. Uh, the people who are the inviters. Uh, and so to me, that's how trust is going to be rebuilt by that kind of local, local action. Trust is a relationship between the number of times you've been betrayed and the number of times somebody came through, through for you. And if somebody comes through for you, then you'll have, be more trusting. And the, the good thing about life is the good things that happens are more important than the bad things that happens. You only really need one or two trusting relationships in your life to have a strong inner core. And so these people are doing that kind of work. And now we understand your optimism. Thank you for sharing all of that. Margaret, I'm going to give you the last word because your husband, John, gets credit for, I'm a, I'm a sucker for anybody who's got a silver lining. And uh, John, during the last administration, talked about the fact that the silver lining was that people were finally going to understand that they had to have a stake in their government, in who they elect, that elections have consequences. And so the last question to you is about your, how your two children, Jack and Tula Lou, are going to see our democracy as they grow up? Well, they're deeply embedded in it. Of course, they have two parents who are very invested in the future of their country. And so they just have grown up in the soup, um, although nobody's allowed to pick parties yet. Uh, look, all of us need to imbue in our children a sense of uh, responsibility towards our history and a, a, a sense of responsibility to our opportunities. Too rarely do the, the children in this country understand how many opportunities we have being for all of the failings, and there are failings, and there is so much work to be done. Uh, I always personally go back to Benjamin Franklin in 1787, stepping out of Independence Hall, answering the question, is it a monarchy or a republic? And he says, it's a republic if you can keep it. And it is absolutely up to me, my husband, our whole generation, our children, and their children to keep it. And we have so much work to do to keep up this republic. Um, civic education, weaving back the fabric of our frayed social civic discourse, um, racial reconciliation in a way that is meaningful and new and, and grapples with um, the upheavals of the last year in 2020, as Eddie had mentioned, all of these things are part of it. There's a new chapter for each new generation. We have our work cut out for us. We have a really good sense of what it is. And it is our duty, responsibility, and opportunity um, to continue to build on the experiment um, that we've inherited.
All I can think of is what David just said, which is people who come through and how you have all during this broadcast come through for us in terms of your, your generosity of spirit. You have donated your time and talent today, um, your candor, your insights into this issue, which impacts us all. I don't know what to say beyond that. Thank you so much for joining us. Until we see you back here next time for Common Ground, I'm Jane Whitney. Take care. I'm your host, Jane Whitney, with heartfelt thanks to you for joining us. Thanks as well to our distinguished guests for helping us to see a complex issue through a different lens as our hope of finding common ground goes on. For more information on this podcast or to watch the broadcast version of Common Ground, visit ctpublic.org forward slash common ground.